0: Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good morning in Washington, D.C. to Cynthia Wong from Human Rights Watch. Cynthia is a senior Internet researcher, and she's joining us today to talk about her report that she co-authored with Felix Horn, They Know Everything We Do on Internet Censorship and Surveillance in Ethiopia. Thank you so much for joining us, Cynthia.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we're going to talk today about the report that you co-authored, and we're going to follow up on a discussion that Kobus and I had earlier about this report, about the increase in telecom and Internet surveillance in Ethiopia. This is not a new story. It's something that's been going on for quite some time. But Human Rights Watch, whenever you write a report, it does raise the kind of attention level. And so today we're going to go into the details of how you actually conducted the research and the conclusions you came to. I invite everybody to kind of hear the conversation that Cobus and I had had as background. Just search for the, you know, they know everything we do on, on our podcast list or on iTunes, and you can get that discussion. Uh, you know, let's just start out very, you know, give me the, the executive summary of your findings that you, you came up with about the, the Chinese role in specific with regards to internet surveillance and censorship in Ethiopia.
1: Sure. Well, I think we had um, two goals with this report, really. First is to take a look at how a government like Ethiopia um, that does have a a longer history of silencing of dissent in the country, um, how a country like that is building its surveillance capabilities and how are those capabilities actually being used in practice uh, and what companies are um, facilitating um, that kind of get knowledge and, and know how of surveillance um, and the second goal here really is to say well depending on what we find um, in that first inquiry how can we make sure that telecom equipment and internet um, access doesn't become another tool for control like the like for a government like the Ethiopian government and so that's kind of the framing that we used to go into it um, and what we essentially found is that Ethiopian security intelligence agencies have nearly unfettered access to phone records, to intercepted phone calls, and to text messages with very little legal protections or protections in practice for the right to privacy. Um, Security agencies were simply able to go in and grab whatever communications they wanted to, and they would then use those um, communications, those intercepted phone calls, to then pull people in for interrogation that they think may be becoming politically active or maybe a part of a banned opposition group. And a lot of people that they did pull in arbitrarily um, and harassed and detained um, were then also mistreated quite badly while they were in detention, um, sometimes amounting uh, to torture in some cases that we found. Um, And so, again, I think one of the main takeaways here is that even though internet and mobile penetration rates in Ethiopia are still quite low, not many people are using mobile phones or the internet um, yet, um, the Ethiopia government has actually set up the, the infrastructure it needs to make sure that these tools don't become um, tools for public discourse, tools for public debate, uh, and tools for um, promoting human
2: rights. Um, and can you, uh, you mentioned that that several foreign companies um, have are currently and have in the past been uh, providing internet you know, kind of unnetworked services to the Ethiopian government, um, including the the Chinese company ZTE. Can you position ZTE in the context of the other foreign, uh, you know, kind of um, actors in in the Ethiopian telecom industry?
1: Yeah, interestingly enough, um, ZTE has been in Ethiopia uh, since at least 2003, if not earlier. Um, 2003 is the earliest uh, record that we can find. Um, and as far as we can tell from our research, um, they were the sole uh, telecom vendor, so the main company that sold equipment to Ethio Telecom, which is the operator, um, since 2006. So from 2006 to 2013, I think, um, they were the sole seller of telecom equipment in the country. Um, and so I, we do think um, one of the things we found was that DT was the company that did provide the equipment that facilitated surveillance and data collection uh, by the security agencies in Ethiopia. In in fact, they're a major player across Africa. Um, I think they have a presence in some 25 or 30 countries.
0: Now, uh, you know, when I was reading the report and and looking particularly at the recommendations towards the end, I I got a, a little bit of a sense of frustration in part because you know as as an american and i know that human rights watch a does not represent a country does not represent a particular political agenda it is absolutely neutral However, it is very difficult to separate the recommendations that you have from certainly a Western ideology about civil rights and political rights. And I guess for me the frustration that I had was there was a lack of context in the report regarding the recommendations of the things that you are recommending, and yet in even the Western governments, as we now know from the Edward Snowden revelations, are not being enacted. Now again, I know every report cannot include a global summary of uh, of, of uh, you know, of, of, of civil rights on, uh, on the internet. But it just seemed like so much of what you were recommending is the same things that we should be having in the United States. Uh, limits to the safeguards, the scope and duration of possible surveillance. We don't really have that in the NSA, the GCHQ, and in, in Europe. And so it doesn't seem to me that Ethiopia increasingly is exceptional. It's becoming more and more the norm among many governments.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, the timing of this report was just interesting from our perspective since we began our research um, before the Snowden revelations began. And obviously, since the Snowden revelations, the debate and the attention to privacy and surveillance has become much more pronounced globally. Um, I will say, I think it's actually... Uh, We actually intend to um, provide the same recommendations and the same – we intend to hold the Ethiopian government to the same standards that we hold every other government of the world. I mean, that is precisely because uh, we believe these are what the international human rights obligations of these countries require. Um, And I will say the, the Ethiopian government is actually a signatory to a key international treaty that does lay out its obligations to protect the right to privacy, just as the U.S. is and just as the U.K. is. Now, it is true that, I mean, we certainly don't think the US and the UK are living up to their obligations. And we've done a great deal of work, actually, to point that out to them very publicly um, and very strongly. But I think one of the key differences here is that, um, you know, we don't know the full extent to uh, what the NSA is doing with what they're monitoring, um, what the GCHQ is doing with its surveillance. But at least as far as we can tell, there isn't any evidence that's emerged that they're using their overbroad surveillance to target government critics or opposition parties in politically motivated ways that we've seen in Ethiopia. Um, And so I think one of the key findings in the report in Ethiopia... Is that the government is using the surveillance to target journalists, to target um, members of opposition groups, and to target even individuals who um, may belong to an ethnic group that is closely associated with uh, an opposition group, right? Well, so people who may not yeah, be I, fully I, politically I, I'm, active.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is – I think if I was sitting in the Ethiopian government and hearing a Human Rights Watch researcher telling me this, I would point to the New York Police Department unit that was surveying Muslim community in New York – I would talk about the no-fly list that was used politically against dissenters of the, of the Iraq war. We have evidence that the IRS was monitoring at least monitoring progressive and uh, you know, uh, Tea Party groups in the U.S. using surveillance technologies. Uh, and so I guess in my, my point is that you're saying that it's not the same, but it, in many ways it looks the same.
1: It is true. Um, and, and I do think, that, again, we we want to hold all governments to the same standard, and that's the whole point of the international human rights framework, that rights belong to people and, and governments need to um, refrain their activities accordingly. Um, and we certainly have raised those issues with the U.S., but I think it, it is a matter of scale as well, right? I mean, if you look at um, the elections in Ethiopia several years ago, I think the ruling party got uh, something like 95 percent of the vote. Um, and I think that does call into question, um, if you look at the broader Uh, kind of strategy of the government, their media law um, to shut down journalism, their new uh, civil society organization law, which has shut down a lot of independent civil society. It's kind of part and parcel with a broader strategy to shut down independent voices and um, to cause people to leave the country even if they become politically active, because it just isn't safe enough for them to be in the country anymore. And so I do think there is a matter of a difference in scale there in what the Ethiopian government is doing versus what the U.S. government or the U.K. government may be doing. Um, I do take your point. Um, But again, I I think as you'll see from some of our writing, uh, we are certainly pointing out their human rights issues um, in the U.S. and the U.K. as well.
2: Um, shortly, uh, about a week or or, or two ago, um, right before Secretary of State John John Kerry visited Ethiopia. Human Rights Watch um, released a statement that um, mentioning that six bloggers and three journalists have been arrested, um, and calling on you know kind of also mentioning that that so far the um, the Obama administration have not made a declaration on on um, on human rights in Ethiopia. Um, can you give us an idea of of what kind of pressure Human Rights is putting both on the on the American and Chinese governments, and what kind of a reactions are you getting?
1: In terms of the arrested blogger specifically, or these issues generally? Both. Um, I, you know, we did raise this with the US government. Um, I think it's a little too soon to tell what has happened so far. So I'm not quite up to speed um, there as to whether the US government raised these issues. Um, as you see from the report, in terms of the broader surveillance and privacy issues, we do make recommendations to the Chinese government as well. You know, ZTE, they are a, I think, partially state owned company still, about 30%. And we do ask home governments, so governments where companies are based. Um, to regulate the conduct of their companies. We do think that governments have a responsibility to make sure that their own companies are not out there in the world facilitating human rights abuses, um, that they do meet their human rights responsibilities, um, which companies do have under the international human rights framework. Um, the Chinese government has obviously been a little more reluctant um, to go down that route. I think they are a little reluctant to make uh, key corporate responsibility um, kind of obligations and, and commitments. Um, but it is something that we have raised with the Chinese government, although they haven 't actually um, responded uh, in kind I think
0: not surprisingly um, you know it 's just not again something I think that the Chinese you know put a lot of emphasis on you know I lived in in China for over over ten years, and when the when I was there when the Internet launched, and, and I thought to myself, you know what, this is really going to screw the Chinese. There's no way they're going to be able to control this. Uh, you know, they did a very effective job at censoring television, print, and radio. And here we are 20 years later, and the Chinese have done an incredibly good job at, 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 at kind of walling off the Internet. Such a good job that it's inspired the Saudi Arabians, the Iranians, and probably the Ethiopians. Uh, you know, more and more we're getting away from a global Internet, and we're getting into regional Internets. And in some ways, China is the model. You get to control everything that comes in and out. And so I wonder if when you did your research on Ethiopia, do the Ethiopians want to create a mini great firewall as they have in China where all information can be monitored, all information, deep packet inspection uh, can be done on email and communications going in and out? Is that the goal of what the Ethiopians are trying to do?
1: Yeah. So part of our research, even though most of the report was focused on surveillance, um, we did actually do internet filtering testing in the country itself. Um, And we did confirm, I mean, this is not a new finding, but we did confirm that the Ethiopian government continues to limit a great deal of access to information online through fairly extensive blocking of web pages uh, and even jamming of radio stations. We looked at that as well. Um, And if you look at the technologies they've been using, in 2012... The TOR project, and and TOR is one of these uh, circumvention tools, right, that you can use to, say, jump the Great Firewall. Um, TOR project actually found evidence that the Ethiopian government began using deep packet inspection technology around 2012. And so I think in the past couple of years, we've seen um, a step up in the level of technical sophistication um, in Internet blocking um, in general in Ethiopia. Interestingly, if you look at the kind of um, Internet blocking they use, It's very similar in technique to what you see in China with the Great Firewall. Uh, And it's actually quite rare, right? I think China is actually unique in the way that it blocks um, Internet access in some respects from a technical perspective. And so um, it is quite interesting. And we didn't um, find direct uh, evidence of of ZT's role in terms of uh, facilitating Internet blocking. But it does raise a question, in my mind at least... Um, If ZTE was the main telecom vendor in Ethiopia around this time, um, the ZTE may also be helping out with a great deal of the, the internet censorship work that the Ethiopian government is doing.
2: This was one of the. Well, this is one of the. Sorry to interrupt. This is one of the issues that we actually discussed in the previous episode as well. Is you know kind of whether um, whether ZTE um, you know kind of actively contributed to to setting up this technology or whether you know kind of technology that they that they kind of set up for other users were then misused by the Ethiopian government.
1: Yeah, so I think as so you know, um, as part of our research, we did speak to former Ethio Telecom employees and former government employees who were familiar with um, these these uh, products and services. And um, ZT does sell a lot of equipment that is just a box, right? It's a box that a government or a operator can then go set up. But if you look at the business models of most of these telecom companies, it's not just about selling boxes, but it's also about selling support services training and consultation. And frankly, that's where they're going to make a lot of their money. And according to the sources that we talked to, um, ZT was doing a great deal of support service for the, the Ethiopian government, as well as training um, for these systems. And so it does raise a question of more uh, moral culpability there. It's not just about selling a box off the shelf, but it's also about assisting the government in its use of these products as well
0: you know one of the reasons that a lot of african governments say that they like working with the chinese is because they don't get lectured to and and again human rights watch is not a state but i wonder if the perception and i'm trying to kind of put myself in ethiopia in some of these other, you know, places like Angola, Egypt, other African countries that have come under the eye and the ire of the West when it comes to human rights, and they look at your report, and they may not make the distinction between Human Rights Watch being a state and representing, you know, a government, and the the same type of messaging that comes out of the annual State Department Human Rights Report. And yet they think that this is more pressure coming from the West lecturing and preaching and annoying them to no end. And again, this is one of the appeals that, that they have from the Chinese because they don't have to deal with any grief. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China does not issue an annual human rights report that can blast every country that doesn't agree with its agenda. And so I guess I'm trying to understand what the reaction is that you've been getting to this report because I can imagine in many parts of Africa both people who may be even friendly to Human Rights Watch kind of look at this as yet just more criticism and the kind of civil and political criticism that after decades and decades and decades is now not as appreciated as it may have been, you know, even just a few years ago.
1: So interesting that you bring that up. I mean, putting aside the surveillance and privacy issues, um, if you look at the global de- debate around corporate responsibility, right, so what human rights responsibilities should companies have as they're out there in the world doing their business, some of the strongest proponents of um, Greater human rights standards for companies has been driven by developing countries in the global south, including in Africa. And South Africa has actually been um, one of the one of the biggest supporters there. Um, and so I do think it's not as uh, simple, I think, as the kind of Western versus uh, non Western divide on these issues. The other thing I'll mention um, is that when it comes to, uh, sorry, <laughs> I, I totally lost my train of thought. No problem. Hey,
0: Kobus, <laughs> let me ask you the same question in terms of how do you think reports like this are received in Africa, both among critics and allies
2: alike? I think one also needs to make a distinction between African publics and African governments. Um, You know, because, because African governments, I think, frequently... Uh, you know, kind of, they, they they frequently do try to play into this kind of like, oh, stop reaching to us, kind of like tetchy, uh You know, kind of, kind of they try, they try to to um, play into a, a kind of a resentment towards towards kind of Western interference um, when they're criticised. But I think um, you know, kind of, in one one shouldn't take that reaction to necessarily also represent African publics, because African publics are frequently in in such a kind of a a, a divided position from their own governments. There is such a lack of trust within lots of African um, societies between the government and and the public, um, that you know that, that and and frequently those publics find themselves completely silenced. Um, you know, kind of among other reasons, because they because they don't. It's difficult to, to do um, opinion surveys in Africa, um, but also because you know the the government is kind of assumed to sp- to actually speak for the people in some kind of organic way, which I. Uh, While that kind of Mm -hmm. organic, uh, you know, kind of relationship frequently doesn't necessarily exist in particular African countries. So, you know, kind of I think uh, in in this sense, um, you know, kind of frequently a report like this might very well find a very kind of sympathetic ear among among African publics, even as it is kind of like dismissed by African governments. Well, the time actually
1: build on that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think there's one anecdote that I I often turn to in this, and this is actually not my anecdote. It's um, from Rebecca McKinnon's great uh, book on the internet um, where there was a blogger on a panel and they were talking about freedom of expression on the internet um, and a government um, who I won't name but is often kind of characterized as authoritarian – they would say, look, freedom of expression is a Western um, kind of value. It's not something that we need to prioritize since we need to focus on development um, and and things like getting access to food and water. And I think the blogger had a great response, and I believe he was from Angola, and his response was, if I don't have freedom of expression on the Internet – How can I talk about who is stealing my food? And so I do think there is a need to kind of acknowledge that oftentimes um, in certain countries, the government doesn't speak on behalf of of citizens necessarily, but only on behalf of their own uh, ruling party.
0: Yeah, but interestingly enough, I I, I speak from a country where there is no freedom of speech. And yet when you talk to people, um, they, they have a very different sense. And again, we in the West oftentimes speak of universal values. And I can tell you from someone who's lived in the developing world for half of my professional career, um, those values are not universal among people um, in the sense that they they don't have the perception here in, in Vietnam, for example, of privacy. It just doesn't exist. It's not because it's being suppressed. It's not because people just don't have the idea and the concept for it. And so, again, one of my hesitations that when I read these Human Rights Watch reports, there's often a universalist approach to it, and people come to this from so many different directions. And it's not just because of government suppression and government oppression that people don't necessarily support uh, a full freedom and a full open society in that respect.
2: I I might actually take... Take, sorry to interrupt you, um, Cynthia. I, I might take issue with that. Just on, um, you know, frequently the the very provision of of a vocabulary to articulate these kind of rights that itself is a very valuable thing to import into into a, a country because frequently they you know kind of it, it allows people to articulate things that they that they don't have the articul something that they're missing but that they find difficult to articulate. And I think a, a good example of that is is the is gay rights actually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of so frequently, um, obviously gay people are always essentially a minority in any society um, so you have all of these gay people sitting in societies where where there's no there's no vocabulary to discuss their own position and then frequently when that vocabulary arrives from America, for example, then that actually gives way, give, gives um, you know, kind of a way to, to publicly articulate a kind of identity that before was undiscussable, you know, kind of in that sense I think, you know, kind of there, there's a kind of of chicken and egg situation there, you know, kind of where frequently unarticulated problems then are. You know, suddenly people have have the tools to actually articulate them. Cynthia, go ahead.
1: No, I was actually going to um, kind of agree with that uh, as well, which is that even in the UK and the US, in the debate around the NSA, um, it's been difficult to kind of get public attention, especially in the UK, because privacy is seen as this very abstract thing. Right. Well, if you don't know someone is spying on you, then how do you know? Um, it's really harming you. And I think one of the things that this report shows is what those privacy violations can then lead to. So if the government knows everything that you're you're talking about on your phone, um, is that going to change your behavior? If the government knows everything that you're talking about online or you're searching for online, is that going to change your behavior? And I think it's important for reports like this to begin to show just what kind of harm can flow from privacy violations.
0: Yes. And and again, just to modify what you're saying, it's not just governments. It's also corporations. Google knows everything that we're doing. Is that going to change our behavior as well? Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, AT&T turned over all of its uh, call logs to the U.S. government after 9-11 without a court order. Uh, you know, Amazon refused without a court order to shut down WikiLeaks. So corporations also seem to play a very important role in this, as we talked about with ZTE. And we didn't mention much about Huawei, which I'm surprised. Uh, you know, very quickly before we go, is, is there a difference in your mind between Huawei and ZTE here, in part because in Ethiopia, the contract to upgrade the telecom network is evenly divided between Huawei and ZTE. Is there a reason why ZTE got more attention in our discussion?
1: Well, if you look at the timing um, of the report, I mean, again, ZTE was the sole vendor um, from 2006 to at least uh, 2012, if not last year. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why we focus on ZTE, because many of the systems that we heard about from the people we interviewed were both provided and supported by ZTE. I do think that Huawei is similarly situated moving forward in the sense that as they develop their business in Ethiopia, If they are selling services or equipment that can facilitate either privacy violations or other kinds of human rights violations... They need to be taking steps of their own to make sure um, that they try and prevent those violations, um, at least as they are linked to their business. Um, And so I do think Huawei is similarly situated in that sense, um, moving forward in terms of their obligations.
0: Well, the timing of the report is incredibly good, in part because the relationship between China and Ethiopia is is growing very, very quickly. In fact, uh, Prime Minister Li Keqiang made Ethiopia one of the stops on his four-country tour of Africa. uh, And we're also seeing more economic engagement, but technical engagement as well. Ethiopia stands out in part because it is far, far behind the rest of Africa when it comes to 3G and 4G coverage, internet access, and telecommunications as a whole. The Chinese are the preferred provider to help bring that up to speed. But it seems like, according to Human Rights Watch, there is a price that's being paid to this. I highly recommend that you check out They Know Everything We Do. We have the link on our website from our prior podcast. We'll post it again. It's also on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China africa project cynthia thank you so much for joining us today and please tell felix uh we'd like to have him on one day to talk about this as well
1: i definitely will and thank you so much for having me
0: well we what we always try to do at the end of every show if if people want to find out more information and human rights watch is just a fountain of information what's the best way if they want to follow some of the research that you're doing and what you're reading and writing
1: I mean, I think the best way is through our website, human rights watch, or sorry, hrw.org, um, and you should be able to find uh, all the, the writing we've done on Ethiopia and on the internet issues there.
0: Excellent. Do you have a Twitter account that you maintain yourself?
1: I do. It's at uh, CynthiaMW.
0: Excellent. And, Kobus, what's your Twitter that people can follow what you're reading and writing? I'm at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can follow me as well on Twitter at EOLander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And Cobus and I are updating from both Asia and Africa. Our Facebook page now over 176,000 followers from all over the world with the top China Africa stories. There's just a fantastic discussion, Cynthia. Since you don't live in China and you don't live in Ethiopia, you live in Washington D.C. and you can access Facebook without any problems. I hope you'll check it out and join us. discussion on uh, on all sorts of, uh, of, 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 of topics related to China and Africa. I certainly will. Excellent. And so we'll be back again with another edition of the China and Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.